Through this Lent season and preparing uh, our hearts for Easter, we've been considering worshiping and serving the Creator rather than the created. And um, I want to read a passage in light of that and in light of Easter. Um, It's found in Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. It says this, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in, but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? asked the men. He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, It is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day. And they remembered his words. Returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, mother of James, and the other women with them were telling the apostles these things. But these words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. When he stood, stooped to look in, he saw only the linen cloths. So he went away amazed at what had happened. This line that struck me in light of worshiping and serving the Creator rather than the created, and in light of this passage, the line, why are you looking for the living among the dead, really summed up my heart quite easily. Why do we look for the living, the created, or the creator among the dead, the created. And our heart is so easily swayed and shifty, and we consider and allow ourselves to stay in this comfort of sin. And what happens is we get so comfortable in our sin and the realities of sin that we start to tote around our sin like it's a pet. Well, it's just who I am. It's my bent, and that's true on some level, but the resurrection has something to say about toting around your sin, because that sin was paid for perfectly by the Savior, and he not only defeated that sin, but he defeated that, the power that sin has over us so that we can walk in newness of life, walk in freedom because of the resurrection. Amen? Let me pray as we open up God's word. God, we thank you for the sending of your Son, Jesus, that he would come and dwell among us, not cling to the throne, but to live and to live perfectly and obediently. God, his his death on the cross and his resurrection, Lord, has amazing realities that we should live by in light of. So, Lord, I pray through your word, you would captivate our hearts, that you would convict our hearts and encourage our hearts, Lord, to walk, not in enslavement or bound by sin, but to walk in freedom, Lord, in light of the resurrection. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Uh, I had been in ministry for like 10 years before I stepped into this position, but it wasn't until... I was in the lead pastor role that I had my first like 
interaction where someone came in on Easter Sunday and they said, he is risen. And I said, yep. <laughs> I, I didn't know we were doing a bit, you know, like there, I was supposed to have a line memorized in response. And um, so he is risen. Yep. <laughs> uh, happy Easter to you. Like, like Adam said, we're thrilled that you're here worshiping with us. Um, I want to just acknowledge sort of right off the beginning that there, there are, are people in each of our services over the course of the morning in very, very different positions when it comes to like, what are we doing here and why are, why are we in this room together this morning. For some, you've, you've been walking with Jesus for a long time. You come to church every Sunday, and Easter is just another opportunity to gather together with the church and celebrate the gospel and what Jesus has done on our behalf. And uh, we're thrilled to get to do that alongside you. For others, you may be sort of way on the other end of the spectrum. Uh, you come in, you're here because either someone made you come or you feel like you were supposed to come. And uh, you're going to sort of like do your time here for the next hour or so before moving on to whatever the rest of the day holds. Uh, I was there for a, a decent chunk of my life. And so I completely understand. Um, we welcome you here. We're glad that you're here. A couple billion people the world over on every continent in virtually every country are gathering and doing this thing uh, together on Easter Sunday, celebrating Jesus's resurrection. And we're thrilled that you would do that here. We want to invite you into it uh, to just watch and consider if, if that is sort of where you are in life. For others, you're somewhere in the middle. Uh, and the thing that's got you particularly uncomfortable is that mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, aunt, uncle made you wear like uncomfortable clothes today. It's like, look, we do the church thing. It's whatever. But why do I have to dress like this today? Um, I wore a full button down today. I normally dress like I should be on like the 14th fairway of the U.S. Open. But my shirt has buttons all the way down today. And whether you're sort of skeptical or in uncomfortable, we just be uncomfortable together. That's my commitment to you. I'll do this and be uncomfortable up here and we can just embrace that together. Sound good? Uh, if you've got a Bible, I want to invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 3. We're in a series in Genesis. We're going to continue forward in that series this morning. If you're like 27 uh, or older, I laid in bed last night trying to come up with what I thought the line was on this. Um, you'll really resonate with the following. If you're 27 or younger, just Google it later and you can find it. But if you're 27 or older, do you remember Y2K? Yeah, what a, what a wild time to be alive, man. The idea was that when the clocks uh, clicked over from December 31st, 1999 to January 1st, 2000, that because of the way computers were programmed with just a two-digit date, that when that two-digit date went from 99 to 00, no one really knew what was going to happen. Like, there were some thoughts about global sort of national large-scale systems that kind of run society that people thought those things might completely shut down. There was also the fact that your little gateway PC, you remember gateway PCs? They came in a box with cow print on the outside. 
Incredible. Your little gateway PC, when you got up on January 1st and went down to your computer room, remember computer rooms? That's called a pocket now. But it was a whole room in your house designated for the computer that you were going to go down there and your little gateway PC was just going to be a smoking pile of wreckage (laughs) in the computer room because the date went from 99 to 2000 and we were not prepared. Now, if you go to the internet now and you Google Y2K, There are very different opinions about whether or not that problem actually was something that existed and needed to be solved. There are some people who will tell you that a small group of very brilliant scientists and computer analysts did some very important work in the months leading up to January 1st, 2000, that basically saved society from not just like going off the grid, but the grid completely collapsing. And then there are other people who will tell you it was never actually a problem at all and nothing was going to happen. And caught in the middle of all of that as it was happening was just the average human being. And so some people filled their basement with like canned goods and bottled water. And some people, like my parents, put their 15-year-old son on an airplane and said, he'll be fine. (laughs) Honestly, I flew from Denver to Kansas City with my best friend, not at midnight on New Year's Eve that night, but at the time that happened to be when like the global aviation system clicked their clocks over uh, to January 1st, 2000. And so I got onto a plane in Denver, Colorado with like five other people and my best friend. We took off, the, the flight attendants literally rolled the snack cart into the middle of the plane and they were like, whatever. Just, it was like Lord of the Flies on that plane. Just, you can have whatever you want. We're just hoping we make it to Kansas City. Was it a problem or not? That, that's like the Y2K question even 23 years later. 2,000 years after Jesus' resurrection, billions of people around the world, they get together in rooms like this and they celebrate and a, a few billion other people the world over look at that and the question is, did Jesus solve an actual problem or not? Because if he did solve a real problem, then what Christians the world over do this morning is the most important celebration that happens on the face of the planet every single year. But if Jesus didn't actually solve a problem, the sin isn't what the Bible says it is, Jesus either wasn't who he said he was or didn't resurrect or the problem doesn't exist, then like the whole thing is the biggest grift in human history. And what we do in places like this on Easter Sunday is just so that we all feel good about ourselves. Which is it? I want to invite you this morning, whether you've been walking with Jesus for a really long time or whether you're here this morning and you're skeptical about the claims of Christianity or maybe uh, about the reality of God at all, I want to invite you this morning to consider with me what is it that we celebrate this morning? Did Jesus actually solve a problem or did he not? And my answer to that is that Jesus provides the only real solution to humanity's real problem. A few weeks ago, we've been working through the the book of Genesis. A few weeks ago, my mom said, "Uh, are we going to do the Genesis thing on Easter or are you going to do something special? We're going to do the Genesis thing, Mom. I'm sorry. She was like, oh, hmm, okay. <laughs> Where we are, though, in the book of Genesis is 
not accidental. It's not a coincidence. We are in Genesis chapter 3 where the Bible lays out for us, here is the problem. That in Genesis chapter 3, all of the beauty of what God constructs in chapters 1 and 2 in a single moment gets absolutely destroyed. And the rest of the Old Testament then is the like wreckage of what happens in the first seven verses of Genesis chapter three until you arrive at Jesus, which the Bible presents as the solution to that wreckage. And so we're gonna start in Genesis chapter three and work our way through this morning. If you've got Genesis open there in front of you, I'm gonna read the first seven verses. We're really gonna look at verses six and seven this morning. Here's what it says. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit in the tree of the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Let's pray. God, thank you for your son. God, in his work on the cross, his triumph out of the grave. Lord, would you give us hearts to celebrate this morning? Not to rush to sort of human self-help that could just make ourselves better, but instead, would you give us hearts that realize the depth of the problem of sin, who see Jesus as the only solution, and who rest and rejoice in the resurrection of Jesus. God, help us to see for the very first time who Jesus is. Help us to savor for the millionth time the truth of who Jesus is. God, would you soften, open, speak into, move powerfully within our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to sort of do a little bit of, of like Genesis 1 and 2 recapping so that if you've uh, been here with us, you just, we get a little bit of a running start into our passage this morning. If you haven't been here with us, we can just all be on basically level footing as we start talking about verses 6 and 7. As I mentioned, Genesis 1 and 2 builds this incredible foundation that then gets torn down in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 1 gives us this big picture of God who is unfathomably great and transcendent. He's the creator of all things. He himself is uncreated, eternal, independent, infinite, unchanging, and he creates everything out of the fullness of his grace and his love. And what he creates, he creates for the sake of displaying the greatness of his unrivaled glory to the ends of the universe. And the peak of that creating work is humanity, male and female made in the image of God, to uniquely bear God's image in the world that he created for his glory. 
You get to the end of Genesis chapter 1, God declares that everything that he has made is very good indeed. And then at the start of Genesis chapter 2, it's as though God takes a step back and he stops to rest and enjoy that which he has created. Then in Genesis chapter 2, you get another picture of like a different angle of who God is. So not only is he this big, grand, transcendent, unfathomably great creating God, All of his greatness is also matched by an intimately personal reality, that he is a covenant-making, promise-making God who is as near as he is great. In Genesis chapter 2, Adam is created. He's placed into this incredible garden that's overflowing with life and provision. And then God creates Eve so that humanity can live in relationship with one another and flourish in relationship with each other, in relationship with God, in the place that God has created for God's glory. And God makes a covenant or like a binding agreement or promise with Adam and Eve. He will continue to provide all the goodness and life and provision of the garden so long as Adam and Eve don't eat from one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They get all of God's provision and they trust in that provision. They also are to trust in God's prohibition. And the consequence for breaking that covenant is separation from God and the provision and the life that he has to offer and ultimate eternal death both physical and spiritual. You get to the end of Genesis chapter 2, and it seems as though everything is just laid out for Adam and Eve in this like incredible, perfect, like unspoiled, why would you want to tarnish this thing sort of reality. Hamilton, the musical, was in town Uh, a few weeks ago, and there's a refrain that pops up throughout the musical. It's sung by Hamilton's wife, Eliza. She she routinely says, look around, look around at how wonderful or how lucky we are to be alive right now. That's the sense at the end of Genesis chapter two. Adam and Eve would be standing there in the garden like, can you believe this? This is incredible. We already read it, but in today's passage, the whole beautiful building comes crashing to the ground. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Genesis chapter 3 presents for us the reality that humanity's sin is rooted in acts and attitudes of rebellious autonomy. Rebellious autonomy. Genesis shows us how in a single moment, all of the beauty and the goodness of Genesis 1 and 2 just comes crashing down. A serpent, the rest of scripture informs us, is Satan, the angel Lucifer, fallen from heaven. He lays before Adam and Eve a temptation that they cannot and do not resist temptation that's a denial of God's goodness. Did he really say you can't eat any of the fruit from these incredible trees? A temptation that's a denial of God's judgment? No, you won't die. A temptation that is a denial of God's uniqueness. Oh, your eyes will be open and you will be like him. And then what happens in verses six and seven happens really quickly. In fact, 
Genesis 1, Genesis 2 moves kind of slowly. Like, what is this place like? What is God like? What is humanity like? What's it like to live in this garden? There's a conversation with a serpent that plays out back and forth and back and forth. And then in verse 6, stuff happens really fast. Eve saw. She took. She ate. She gave. Adam ate. And the rebellious autonomy piece is the moment in which Eve determines for herself that the fruit that God said not to eat is actually good. It's that decision that sets everything else into motion. Up to this point in the book of Genesis, chapters one and two, God has been the one determining what is good. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness hovered over the surface of the deeps. The Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light, and it was good. And then day three, four, five, six, good, 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 good. Day six, very good indeed. Genesis chapter two, God says it's not good that Adam is alone. And so he creates Eve and they're flourishing in relationship with one another. And then you get to Genesis chapter three and the serpent says, you could totally eat that fruit if you wanted to. And Eve takes a look at it and she says, you know what? That fruit is good. And now she has made a decision. I think that fruit is good. God said not to have it, but it seems good in all of these various ways. It seems good for food. It seems delightful to look at. It seems desirable for obtaining wisdom. Why should I not take a bite of that? Christopher Watkins says it this way. In the context of Genesis 3, autonomy manifests itself as deciding for oneself what ought to be counted as good and evil. It is not, of course, deciding what is good and evil because God has already settled that question. And any new legislation that Adam and Eve passed down from their DIY parliament does not annul God's royal decree. We are masters at self-justifying our rebellious autonomy. Look at the way Eve does it. Well, it's good for food. Look at all the food that God has provided. He said not to eat that, but it, it would be good for food. It's delightful to look at. Genesis 2 gave us this incredible description of the place. There are these rivers that's teeming with life and with water, and there's gold over there, and there are these resources tucked into different places. And this tree's delightful to look at too, like the rest of this place, and it's desirable for obtaining wisdom. Why would that be a bad thing? Should, shouldn't I want wisdom? All of that is distortions that are rooted in God's provision. But there are distortions that are based on the desire to make our own pronouncement, Eve's own pronouncement of what is good. And so she makes her determination, tempted by Satan, and then she acts on it. She turns to Adam, who's there with her, and he acts on it as well. There's one other piece to all of this. Satan's temptation. God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like him, knowing good and evil. That little promise, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, comes half true. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, delightful to look at. It was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. 
Satan said their eyes would be opened, and they were. But Satan also said that they would be like God. But what happens is Adam and Eve's eyes are opened, and you get this anticlimax. Then both of their eyes were open. Oh, and they knew that they were naked. And the goodness of what God had created there is instantly spoiled because their eyes are open. It's not that their eyes were open and they're elevated now to be like God. It's that their eyes were open and they have seen everything spoiled. And they sow fig leaves and they try to hide. And their relationships with one another and their relationship with God immediately starts to move away from unity and toward alienation. And there you have the entrance of sin as the Bible calls it, into the world. Now, our sin today is not all that different. What lies at the root of much of our sin today is the longing for autonomy. I will make my determinations of what ought to be right and ought to be wrong. I will make my determinations of what ought to be evil and what ought to be good. But it's not just moral distinctions like that that we want the autonomy to make. Our desire for autonomy bleeds into the way that we think that we should live in society, function in relationship with one another. Our sense, our desire for autonomy bleeds into our sense of like where we get our identity and our thoughts about how our relationships ought to function. And D.A. Carson, a pastor and a scholar, puts all that together and he calls it the de-godding of God. That what happens in Genesis chapter 3 is that Adam and Eve decide to de-God God. He no longer has the right to determine what is good. I have the right to determine what is good. And my thoughts are on par with his. We've been de-Godding God ever since in our hearts. And we continue to do so today. In fact, much of our current cultural moments worldview is built on this idea that each and every one of us has a personal, rational, perfect sense of autonomy. That we can make perfect and right decisions all on our own and then live in response to those decisions that we make. We do this in societal matters. We do it in moral matters. We even do it as followers of Jesus. In Christian circles and debates on any number of things, we operate with the assumption that the only real way to know is if I'm able to act in complete autonomy without anyone speaking into me, and then I'll be able to make a right decision. We'll do our own research, come to our own decision on the basis of our own autonomy, settle on a decision that we believe to be right for us, and let others do the same. And so I'll name attention at this point. And it's attention specifically for those among us who might be skeptical about Christianity. To even be willing to take Scripture as somehow authoritative or helpful for our lives require that we confront our thoughts and our desires for autonomy. Oftentimes, as pastors or people who work at churches or even as followers of Jesus, when we arrive at these big Christian holidays, Easter, Christmas, we think that Well, it will be as easy as someone getting up there and presenting the facts of the gospel, and that will help people be saved. And the Holy Spirit certainly works in the midst of that all the time, and God does save people that way. But often in our culture, what happens is people come into these places and they say, I reject the entirety of your premise. I don't need the facts. Why should I let that book put in jeopardy my perfect autonomy? 
So, sure, state your facts, but I reject the starting point. And now where does that leave us? So often, that's the conversation that's happening between a follower of Jesus and someone who is not. It's not necessarily a debate about whether or not Jesus actually lived. You don't ever get to that point. It's not necessarily a debate about whether or not he actually rose from the dead. You don't ever get to that point. It's a decision about should something outside of myself be able to tell me that I'm broken, that I should live a certain way, but I don't, and that there is a solution that is also outside of myself. In matters of morality and sin, as the Bible describes, we're bent toward thinking those same rules apply. I'll look at the options and make the decisions that seem right to me. To even allow the Bible's description of God to inform whether or not we believe in such a being requires that we first make the decision to let Scripture have some influence over the way that we think. And so if you find yourself in the skeptical position this morning, here's your permission to stop listening to anything else that I say. Because everything else I say is going to come from the presupposition that this thing has valuable information inside of it. I would invite you into a conversation. I would invite you into thinking and reflecting about whether or not your sense of autonomy is actually good. Can you actually always trust yourself to make right decisions in and of your own accord? And if not, who else gets to speak in? Someone else who cannot make perfect right decisions all the time of their own accord? Or is there something outside the system? And if there's something outside the system that could speak into it, would you be open to listening? That's where this conversation often has to begin, by tearing down our sense of autonomy as being the be-all, end-all for human existence. Now, I am going to go on and talk a little bit more. Because sin, as the Bible describes it in Genesis chapter 3, carries with it one set of devastating results. Adam and Eve are told that eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil will lead to certain death. And they're not struck dead right there in Genesis chapter 3. In fact, they end up walking out of the garden alive. But the New Testament describes a living sort of deadness that humanity walks around in. Ephesians chapter 2 says it this way. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked, according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath. Kind of like in Genesis chapter 3, the verbs are really important in here because it's all a sort of living kind of deadness. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but you were walking, deciding to live according to the ways of this world, making choices to follow the ruler of the power of the air, which is Paul's really verbose way of saying Satan and evil. You gave yourself over to the spirit working in the disobedient. We lived among them in our fleshly desires. We carried out the inclinations of our flesh in our thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath. Such is the root, the nature, and the result of sin, a living kind of deadness. One act of rebellious autonomy from Adam and Eve now has led to where humanity exists with a pervasive attitude of autonomy that bleeds itself out in acts of autonomy. 
Adam and Eve de-godded God in the garden. We continue to do so today. And so the question before us is whether or not that problem is real. Is this like a Y2K situation? Or is this sin thing an actual problem? And if it's an actual problem, is there actually a solution? Because what we celebrate this morning is that there is a real solution to that real problem. From the New Testament's very first words about Jesus, we see him set up as the solution to the problem of sin. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. John 1, 29. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right from the beginning, Scripture says, this man Jesus is going to provide the answer to a real problem. The real problem is sin. And scripture tells us that Jesus provides this solution by reversing the act and the attitude of Adam and Eve. He acts in humble obedience rather than rebellious autonomy. Whereas humanity's sin is rooted in one act of rebellious autonomy, humanity's salvation is rooted in one act of humble obedience. The death of Jesus on the cross. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is recorded as saying that he will be betrayed into the hands of men and be killed. And the third time he says it, he says it this way, everything that is written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over and he will be mocked, insulted, spit on, and after they flog him, they will kill him and he will rise on the third day. That's in Luke chapter 18. Everything that is written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. And how will it be accomplished? It will be accomplished because Jesus will submit in humble obedience to it. So he sets his face and he walks directly toward that fate in Jerusalem. Before he's arrested, he's praying in a garden, Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. While he's hanging on the cross in the throes of death, a criminal gives him opportunity, another shot at autonomy. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself. Save yourself. You don't have to go through with this. But Jesus chooses humble obedience. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve determine what they think ought to be good and then they act upon it. But in the life of Jesus, the Savior humbly obeys every facet of what God declares to be good, and he never sins. In the death of Jesus, the Savior humbly obeys what the Father has deemed to be good, and he humbly goes to the cross, where he suffers on behalf of sinful humanity. The Savior's action in both regards, in life and in death, is an active kind of submission. Humble obedience to God's will, according to God's rule, for God's glory. And the result is a reversing of the consequences of sin. No longer do we have to walk around in a living sort of deadness because in the resurrection, Jesus puts death to death. On Easter, we celebrate the fact that Adam and Eve's rebellion, which led to death, has been triumphed over by the Savior's humble obedience, which results in life. And here's the thing about it. There's no room for autonomy in it. You cannot behave your way 
into salvation. You cannot make enough right decisions to make yourself right before the Lord. You cannot determine perfectly for yourself what is good and what is evil and make enough of those choices over the course of your life that on the balance when you stand before the judge, he'll say, ah, yeah, you did a good job. What we really need is a real solution to a real problem. And that real solution is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was really hung on a cross and he really all the way died. They took him off of that cross and they buried him in a tomb. And then they really rolled a stone in front of it. And on the third day, he really stood up and he really walked out. That is the only solution. That act of humble obedience, that triumphant resurrection over death is the only means by which our rebellious autonomy can find a solution. His act of humble obedience is available to everyone by God's grace. And Paul talks about the results of that in the Ephesians passage I already read from. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then Paul goes on. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift. Not from works so that no one can boast. Whereas sin carried with it one set of devastating results, salvation carries with it one set of glorious graces. And it's grace because you didn't do anything to achieve it. You can't do anything to earn them. They're given to us despite us. Look at how dependent all the verbs are in this passage. He makes us alive. He saves us by grace. He raises us up. He seats us with Jesus. He displays his glory through us. He extended kindness to us. He gives us the gift of salvation. No room for autonomy there. Jesus acts in submissive, humble obedience, and now we can be saved by receiving God's grace in a submissive, humble obedience. And then as followers of Jesus, we live the rest of our days in submissive, humble obedience. All because Jesus not only reversed the action and the attitude of Adam and Eve in the garden, but also because in doing so, he reversed the consequences. We no longer have to be people walking around in a living sort of deadness. Thanks to Jesus, we can be people who have had our death put to death and have had life brought to true and full life. Jesus provides the only real solution to humanity's real problem. If you've not ever received that gift, maybe you, you wouldn't say you're in the skeptical category, but you maybe wouldn't say that you're like in the I want to come to church next week and wear nice clothes again category. You're somewhere in the middle in like the ambivalent sort of apathetic middle that a lot of uh, America lives in. If that problem of sin is real and if the consequences are true 
And if Jesus actually provides a solution that scripture says that he does, then that is an existential question that every single human being on planet earth must wrestle with at some point. There's a card on your seat. We put one on every chair over the course of the morning. We recognize that for some people, you may have come with someone and you've got someone that you could ask some questions to, you could talk to about what it would mean to receive God's grace for salvation. But we also recognize that for some others, you may not be comfortable having that conversation with someone that you came with, or you might just want to talk to a pastor. You can use that card, uh, drop it in one of the uh, tithe offering boxes. We don't pass a plate around here, so there's little slots in the wall, one back here in the sanctuary, one out in the lobby, and one back by the coffee bar. Just fill that card out, drop it in those slots, and someone on our staff would love to connect with you. For followers of Jesus... I want to end by offering an application or a takeaway for you. And it's really not all that different than it is for anyone else. The challenge is to live in light of the resurrection. For those who've not received God's grace, that means stepping into relationship with him. For those who have, it means stepping forward in continual dependence upon him, living and walking in the power of the resurrection. There's actually a simple picture or act that the church throughout the ages has practiced that ought to give us a reminder of this reality every single time we partake in it, and that is the act of communion. Derek Kidner, a commentator on the book of Genesis, observes that the words she took and she ate, quote, describe so simple an act that is so hard to undo. But that is what Jesus did. Adam and Eve in the garden took and ate, and with it brought death and living deadness into the world. Jesus, on the Thursday night, just before his arrest and crucifixion, sits down at a table with his disciples. Matthew chapter 26 says it this way. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink all of you. For this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Adam and Eve took and ate. One act of rebellious autonomy. And then death comes crashing into the world, dismantling the beauty of Genesis 1 and 2. Jesus says, take and eat. And as you do so, be reminded that through one act of humble obedience, your death has been put to death. One set of words reminds us of humanity's great problem. The other forever reminds us of Jesus's great solution. And so every time you take communion, follower of Jesus, remind yourself that his one act of humble obedience undid the just consequences for every single one of your acts of rebellious autonomy. When we come together at communion and we take and we eat, we do so not as an act of sin, but as an act of humble faithfulness, recognizing that only Jesus could provide for us the solution to the problem of our sin. I'll end this morning where Adam started. Luke 24. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were there, perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified. 
and bowed down to the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Asked the men. He is not here, but he has risen. If you had walked into the garden after Adam and Eve's first sin, the question that the angels guarding the gate would have asked is, why are you looking for the dead, Adam and Eve, in the land of the living, the garden? As Mary and this group of women show up to the tomb, Jesus' act of obedience changes everything. And now a couple of angels ask the question, why are you looking for the living, Jesus, in a place for the dead, a tomb? Church, when we gather together, not just on Easter, but on every Sunday morning, we come in as the living, celebrating an empty tomb. Amen? Amen. Let's sing together.